Hello and welcome to this episode of Mind the Gap with me, Tom Sherrington and Emma Turner. Hello, Emma. Hello, Tom. It's nice to see you back on uh, on home soil after your jaunts oh, yeah. around the world. Yeah, we've been uh, on, I've been on my jollies. <laughs> it's been work, and we're really delighted today to have a bit of a legend. Drum roll. Nick Goddard <laughs> is in the house. <laughs> How you doing? I don't want to. I won't swear at you like I want to right now, Tom. I'm fine, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> now we go back. We go back a long way, and, uh, and it's it's just so great to have you on this. Emma and I have been doing this for like a couple of years now, but it's about time we got you on here. And I mean, people will know you for all sorts of different reasons. And I noticed that on your Twitter recently, you, even you mentioned educating Essex because yeah, I, had, were, I thought I had to really. <laughs> You were reminiscing about going to the BAFTAs. Yeah. That what was that like? Well, to be fair, that I you know, it's it's eleven years, is it? Twelve years. Twelve years now. It will be in October since it went out. So it's just odd that A, I still have a platform, I guess, following it. I, I wouldn't I didn't have one before. Um, but yeah, and, and looking back on some of the the crazy sort of opportunities we're given, you know, presenting an award at the British Comedy Awards. I mean where you know what the hell was that about um and yeah going to the baftas you know john snow the newsreader not the guy from the game of thrones you know coming up and talking to us having a wee in the men's toilets with a car either side of me alan one side jimmy the other that was a bit weird so <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah it was and i'm i wasn't very good at um the older can i have a selfie please for everything else so i've got like two pictures from the whole thing because i was far too embarrassed to go around and pester people to take pictures with them but yeah it was, it was strange yeah really strange well they probably wanted to take pictures with you i mean this is this is, this is my um I, I i often refer to this because you know a lot a lot has happened to me since being mm. like a profile with social media and blogging and i remember yeah. sitting next to you vic and i used to be in the same head teachers group in essex and i sat next to you at this event and um we, the, this guy from america was talking to us for, it was called alan november he was telling us about blogging That's right saying Twitter's the, ne- the next thing and you've got to get in and, I, and you were already on Twitter and I was like okay, well you've got like 8,000 followers or something and you said I'll tell you what I'll follow you and you are my 50th follower yes <laughs> I could yeah. have a badge for that now with your hundreds of thousands you've got now I went, I went home I showed my son look Vic Goddard follows me and he was going <laughs> no way no <laughs> what? you're kidding me and he was so impressed <laughs> You didn't tell him what what a numpty I am, really. Though no, you kept you kept him up there. Yes, good. I don't want you to don't give my blow my cover, Tom. No, it was, it was like the coolest thing that had ever happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was your first, you know, foray into the world of Vic Goddard? Obviously, watch the program when I was in year eleven. <laughs> uh, uh, tough paper round you, man. Emma, I tell you. Uh, no, I do. I do remember watching you and and watching the program. But I yesterday was googling you as well, just to try and get some more up to date information. And I want to know if you are actually still the in the punk group Subway sect. <laughs> if you Google Vic Goddard, that's what comes up. It's re- what's really funny is I've actually become friends with that bit going on online because really? I I would regularly get somebody sort of tweet me about this, my late punk song that I've released or, you know, memories of me hearing me sing. And I'm like, you got the wrong one. There's only one D in his one. And then he sort of, I think he got a few head teacher ones. And so we then DM'd each other and he sent me, he sent me records. It also, it's been, it's been very lovely, but it's been very bizarre. It's either that one or bring, bring his Vic there. That's what I normally get, one or the other. <laughs> Only from people of a certain age, obviously. Oh, what, what, what is online? So you have this um, bio on the Institute of Education website from being a speaker and it says, Vic Goddard is proud to be a council estate boy from South London that suffers the curse of therefore being Crystal Palace. Caught any of education educating Essex, he was probably the one crying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, they 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 pick my main points, Tom, anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's I still cry at the time. That doesn't that doesn't change. But I know it's I mean I, I feel like um 
you know, I mean, because you, you've you've been a head teacher all that time, and the, the, it's we've been through some some you know trials and tribulations, and it's been interesting because I feel like probably I don't know would you know this would happen to you anyway. You you, you came a kind of a, a voice, quite a strong voice mm. in the, in the profession, uh, representing schools, representing disadvantaged areas, children, inclusion, so many things. And I, one of my memories of doing something interesting with you is when we were in the Heads Round Table and we went to the, the D of E and we met Michael Gove. And there were three Michaels. There was Michael Wilshaw, Michael Gove, yeah. and Michael And you sat between Michael Wilshaw and Michael Gove. And you just kind of like gave, you had your fingers pointing at both. <laughs> you two have got to sort this out. <laughs> I, there are times, Tom, when I look back on that thinking, Oh my goodness! I, I I how many targets do I want to put on my back? You know that, and to be fair, that that has crossed my mind on a few occasions. But I've now got to the stage, Tom. Where I'm 54. I've got a maths degree. So the worst thing, the worst thing I could become a head of maths if they come for me as a head teacher. There's always something else I can do. So I, I thought I'd get quieter as I get closer to the to retirement. But actually, I was going to keep firing bullets. I think because uh, I've got less to lose than many people. So what is it? I mean, this, this, so we could talk about lots of things, but what do you, just as a general thing, as a head now, what what do you feel? Like, what's what's winding you up the most? You know, what's the thing that you <laughs> most like really strongly about? And you think, come on. I just, the, I mean, there's there's several things. The, the how we view young people as a society generally, and how we look at the worst of them, and you know, so often you hear you know, read the papers or hear government ministers talking about antisocial behaviour. It's a bit like the migrant crisis, you know, it's really easy just to toll young people with the same brush. So that frustrates me. But I, the biggest thing for me is that we've got, um, currently got a government that claims investing in children and isn't. And, you know, I I became the head just off, just literally as the Tories came into power with um, in 2010. So I missed the good days when there was some money in the system and you could be innovative and try different things. And so for me, it's yeah, the, the, the stump I'd die on right now would be to to get funding improved for schools to children. This generation of children don't miss out on what previous generations had. That's because there's nothing I can do about that, Tom, I think. I think that's why that's my heart of this one in the fact that there are many, you know, we're not, we need to raise standards. Okay, we can try and make teaching better. We can do those things, but actually not having enough money just to do the job um, and therefore leaving children vulnerable is is really frustrating. We've reached that point, Tom, and you'll remember it as a head, where the only way to get support for a child is to permanently exclude them. That's the only way you can get support services to, to react instantly. You know, and I'm not somebody that, you know, I have permanently excluded children, normally drug-related stuff, because there's a line in the sand for me. Um, but, you know, to have young people that you just know could be doing so much more, could be achieving so much better, could end up being real strengths of a community and society, and you're able, you're not able to to meet their needs. And if you can't meet their needs, and therefore their behaviour gets worse or whatever, then you're left with literally no choice. There's no outreach. There's nothing you can reach out for for without throwing money at it. So we haven't got any money, and all all the support we need costs. So it's I, I feel. Some days I'm just running repeatedly face first into a wall and choosing to get up the next day and do it again. Um, yeah. And that's and that doesn't really make any sense. So what, what is it, mate, that, because you said you repeatedly get up every day and run into a wall, what is it that keeps you going? Because there'll be lots of people feeling, especially lots of people in leadership, feeling, mm. I don't know if I've got anything left. So what is it that, that you mm. draw on to kind of keep going every day? I love the community I work for. And, and you know, Harlow has a really, um, you know, even Harlow people don't speak nicely about Harlow. Um, but I love the community. You know, I, I, I know where the community came from. You know, Harlow grew up of East London moving up up the M11 and the A10. And, you know, it's much more diverse than it's ever been. But, you know, hi, you know, historically at the core, it's still a, a white British working class town. and and, it, and so many of them have should have much greater aspirations for themselves than they do. And I was, you know, I know I was lucky. I had a, you know, my mum and dad stayed together throughout my dad's life. 
Um, my dad left school at 14, unable to read or write, but was an amazing plumber um, and a plumber to the stars. Um, and mum raised us and, you know, then went back into work after she'd raised all of us. And so I, but I know I look at my friends, you know, either side of me and my estate in London and, and see, saw the path they went down. And, and it's, it's difficult to, to think that without my family and without amazing teachers at school, you know, my school was the secondary modern school. So you failed your 11 plus, you went to mine, you passed, you went to the grammar school. I was like second or third year beyond secondary modern. So I could have cho- chosen my school and I chose to go to the same school as my brothers, which happened to be the school that you went to if you failed. Um, but the teachers there would just do anything. If I, if I was key, if, you know, I was key, obviously sporty, um, you know, they would be there at seven thirty in the morning to open the gym up. They would send me on refereeing courses because I knew what I wanted to be when I was older. And so I, I've got a real debt to those people. I've got a debt to my family, but that's what family should do. I just know that I'm lucky, so therefore I need to make the most of the luck I've had. Um, but I, I owe a real debt to to my teachers from when I was a kid because I could have ended up dealing drugs or anything else that other people around me went through. So, um, so there's a feeling of indebtedness, I think. But I love my. I, I still love the job. I still wake up and you know, I, I I've had to start to love different things about the job as my job has changed. But it's still such a privilege. And you know, for I guess as a head, when a family choose your school after your head teacher's talk in September or anything else, you think, blimey, they trust me. Um, you know, I, I I can't ever. I don't think I'll ever get beyond the blimey they trust me stage i don't think um, because you know it is it is a privilege and having any sort of purpose has been a privilege during lockdown especially and then beyond that you know we've lost their purpose have often lost their way and so i you know I've, I've got to no matter how hard it is try to embrace the opportunities that i've been given and you know that's that's why I, yeah it does it really does boil down to loving the community i work with and that really comes through just I mean, I've been to your school several times and I've had the privilege of walking around your school with you. And it's just it's just a total joy. I mean, the way you meet kids on the corridor, the conversations you have with them, the way you yeah. sort of leave them and the teachers with a spring in their step. And you're always sort of saying, oh, there's some hard messages to, to get across sometimes, but then the way you do it. And there's this sort of feeling of, I don't know, a, a strong community spirit. And then you built the building. I mean, it's not new now, isn't it? But look, it's no. not building it's magnificent and it has this sort of well you call it the heart space or something like that the heart space yeah 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 the heart space it's like a space in the middle of the school where everyone congregates and uh it's a and that's partly but you were partly responsible for the design of that as well weren't you so it's obviously got you in it yeah oh, well, to be fair it's really i think it's really got that our school community in it i've always said to parents especially when our building was completely new don't choose us for the building because if you put passwords in a shed at the bottom of the field, it would still feel the same because it's about people. Um, but there is no doubt that the building is great. And what was interesting that design process. So you're right. I was, you know, we started with a blank sheet of paper and, and some architects and told to get on with it because at the same time as we were given the money, building schools for the future was being shut down by Michael Cove. So, um, you know, we were sort of fortunate that we still had that, that funding. Um, but, you know, I remember we went to the Innovation Centre at the University of Essex. Did you ever go to that the round room with white walls that you could all write on and everything else? So I took all the governors and some staff and some students of that, and we all sort of spoke about one building, one common purpose, you know, all having the same relationship to the centre of the building. And the architects came up with these three different designs, and it went out to all the staff and everybody else. And it was 100% unanimous that, that building represented our ethos. And I think that was why... I think that's why it's worked. You know, normally you, you have a building then you, you create your ethos once you're in it, but because it's, we were already in established school. So, yeah, we were, that was, that was lucky. You know, don't get me wrong. It was also incredibly difficult because not only were we involved in the design and build process of a new building, we had the TV cameras in at the same time. And I didn't have a clue. I'm honest. <laughs> My dad was a plumber and he's a very practical man. I was, chasing footballs and rugby balls that's all I was interested in so I had to, you know learning about the thermal density of concrete was a learning experience for me that I never thought I'd have yes that's so that, oh, that is, have you ever been, been there Emma 
Well, I've, I've managed to build in projects in headship, yes. And I had to, like you, blag my way through my extensive knowledge of asbestos <laughs> and the plumbing in of miniature toilets. I needed to ask your dad, Vic, about that. <laughs> yeah, he would have helped you. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I was just going to ask about this, that you've got this real connection to the school in that you've actually created the fabric of it as well. But do you think as a as a head teacher that you need to have that real connection with the community and the school to really be successful and enjoy that job? Because I know that some people are, are, are racing to get into headship and yeah. kind of see any headship as 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 a win. But actually, yeah. do, would you say kind of for every pot there's a lid, hang out for the one that's that where you feel like you can really connect. I think it's a bit like girlfriends and boyfriends in that there isn't only one. <laughs> That's a there different several... podcast, Vic. <laughs> I mean, not at the same time. I mean, you know, your relationship would work with lots of different people. It just happens to be the one who you've chosen and they've chosen you. And I think that's the same with schools, you know. I, I think there are natural fits. You know, I, I, I worked at a fee-paying independent school overseas for three years. And, you know, it was wonderful and the kids were amazing. And you could – but did I ever get a real buzz about helping a, a kid that was never really going to struggle in their life because dad happened to be the ambassador or owned the Kodak franchise, Kodak franchise for the whole of the Middle East or whatever? No, I didn't. They were lovely and I had a lovely time. And, I, you know, I did lots of lovely things, diving and everything else. but. It didn't light a fire in me. And I always knew that I would go back to a school or an area where I felt I was represented. You know what I mean? I think, you know, I could very easily have seen my family living in Harlow. It was, you know, if we'd have been in North London, that's maybe a direction my family would have gone. And then, you know, do you then have, would my cycle have been different? Would my life have been different if that had been the case? So I, yeah, I, I do think I do think I don't think there's one I don't think there's there's one fit for everybody but I do think there's there's things that feel more natural and mm. and when it gets tough and you'll both know that you know when the parent who's telling you 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 know you haven't done anything for the school and you've given up the last five nights to, to be late at school and everything else is it's it's hard not to just say why do I bother um but unless you know why you bother, if you know what I mean? I can see the difference I've made. I've been there a generation. I've been there over 20 years. And I've got so many um, ex-students back as mum and dad now at school, you know, and, and seeing how they still respond to me 20 years later, 15 years later, you know, that's that's amazing. You know, that's such a privilege to have. And, you know, we joking with Tom at the start about sort of the British Comedy Awards. You know, Barbara Windsor, spoke to me for 45 minutes about how a teacher saved her life you know and and you know we got asked for photographs by really much very famous people and it was because we represented a teacher in their life or somebody that was important to them you know from that perspective and so to be able to to feel that you're going to make that difference to somebody you know I, I can't think of a better thing to have to, to be able to look back on you know so it's oh yeah it's a privilege you're listening to Mind the Gap, presented by John Cat Educational. Over the past six decades, John Cat has supported teachers and school leaders with research-based, easy-to-use professional development books for the entire faculty. Visit us.johncatbookshop.com in the United States or at johncatbookshop.com or elsewhere across the globe to find the latest titles. So it's, it's interesting because I noticed that you, um, you, this is something you and Emma have in, have in common, is that you... You're kind of a co-principal now, so you share the role, yeah. um, and uh, you know Emma's done that as well. So what what difference has that made? Now you've got a, a sort of partner in crime to sort of share the load with. Is that how do you how do you work that out? Um, yeah, it's it's been interesting, and I think you know, I mean, fundamentally for me, I'm also CEO of Trust, and so you know, we're four schools, hopefully likely to be six schools in the next year or so. Um, you know, and they're all in hollow, they're all in walking distance from each other. And so they're, you know, and as much as I'm co-principal at Passports, and that's the right, you know, that's my my bread and butter, um, I've also got to offer support to other leaders and other people. So um there one reason was the guilt that I felt of not being able to be at Passports all the time and the parents sort of, you know, you're never here, and that being difficult because 
you know, it's like they often want to talk to the engineer, not the oily rag, in their opinion, you know, and rather than not really understanding the oily rags, the ones doing the work. Um, so it, it got, and also it got to say to her, Natalie, my co-principal, um, I could see that I was frustrating her and I could see that running things past me was she was going to end up shooting me or leaving. Um, and actually it was more important for our community that she stayed um, because of her skills and, and knowledge and who she is. Um, and so I was, you know, I was delighted when I said, look, let's, let's split it. And so that's what we've done. I, she carries the, the majority without a shadow of a doubt, because as we've now taken on, you know, we've got a service level agreement with another secondary school, same with another primary school. We're trying to, trying to work across a few. Um, it's, yeah, it's been difficult. And, and likelihood is that, you know, I probably need to get completely out of Nat's way in the near future. Because she's, you know, she'll have had enough of having to run things past the blokers at the school down the road rather than in her school. So um, it was the right thing to do. And actually, I, I, I don't know what you feel, Emma, but um, I think it's healthier for the school. I think it's healthier for the community to have two people who are able to bounce things off of each other. And I know you do as head and deputy, but it isn't the same. You don't have the same level of, of comeback as a deputy. So it's, it, it's definitely the right thing to do. And I... I'd really encourage governing bodies and schools if they're looking, you know, to a point, you know, have they got two deputies that have got the community behind them and, and all the faith that goes with that, give it to them, let them run it together because they probably already run the school together with the head pretending they do. So, you know, let them get on with it. It's so refreshing to hear that, mate, because um, there's still, especially at very senior level, a reluctance to kind of distribute or spread the head teacher load but I think I mean you've been in the in hedge for a long time the job has changed and I think I think in some ways it's almost too big for one person now and I think the model of either whether it's a head and exec head whether it's a co-headship whether you know whether it's a head of school and an exec whatever that is I do think the nature of the role now means that we do need to look at those roles more flexibly to provide the support to provide the capacity For schools to run in different ways, especially as the nature of the job has changed. I think you need experts. I think, you know, I, I look back on even, you know, 11, 12 years ago when I started as head. Um, it I was I was head of HR, basically. I was head of, you know, you 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 had the sign-off on finances that was far too involved than I had the knowledge for. Um, you know, and it was impossible. I mean, the job was impossible. I couldn't be an expert in all those things. I'm still not an expert in all those things. But I employ some really good experts. You know, my CFO is amazing. My my person who leads on HR, well, she's a massive retention tool for me. And I tell her that all the time. The people stay because you look after them. And when they've got something that needs doing, you're there to do it for them, rather than can I make an appointment to see if yeah, he'll be back in tomorrow. You know, actually, she's there for them whenever they need her to be there. So I... I I think the days of it's interesting because I, I rallied against academies. I, I, even now, I, I'm gutted that we that we needed to have them. That we should have been working cross phase. We should have been working in cluster groups much more closely than we were anyway. But we didn't for whatever reason. So we ended up in the position where we are. And I was always really reticent. You know, we were a standalone academy. We've now we're then three primary schools joined the map because they needed a bit of protection. If I'm honest, locally, um, and, I, and I look at that and now I go. Okay, now we've got another secondary school on board. I can actually see the benefits of that. And so, if we can't, if we if we're never going to go back to the LA mode, then actually having local connected schools that actually do work and share responsibility is a really healthy thing. You know, I look at the the, the one secondary school that we've just we just sort of started working with, and you know, I've already learned lots of things from working with them that are relevant to my school, even though I'd say. You know, Passmore's is probably further down the journey of improvement than they are, um, but there was still plenty to learn. So, I, I think that the schools have become too specialist. You know, specialists around pastoral support. You know, if you haven't got a mental health idea, then you're going to struggle there as well. So it's it, yeah, I, 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 the COVID principles thing has been the absolute blessing for me. Music, how many things you have to do, sort of, and be expert in, and. And I, when listening to you and, and watching you work, this sort of the context specific stuff, it, it's so interesting. But there are lots of sort of 
a fairly nerdy debates about what type of knowledge you have to run a school. And I think, yeah. you know, I, I've, I've been at your school, for example, with, with Tom Bennett when he was doing his behaviour management training course, yeah. just along with him. And there's expertise around that, which you have in, in, in space. And there's finance and the HR. But there is this also this, this personal charisma aspect of being the figurehead or the person that makes people feel safe and they're in a good place. And I think that has a, a context-specific thing. And I remember, where, I mean, you know you know this, I remember I, I, when I was at the head of a, a grammar school in Essex, very selective school, invited to come and support a school in Harlow. <laughs> You're looking yeah. at me like, Tom, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not that easy. And I was going, well, I know, but I've been asked, so what am I going to say? And I wanted to be involved. But I just just going there thinking, yeah. This is this is bigger than anything I've ever seen. This is a big task, and yeah. it takes time and years and that real personal investment. And you can't just fly in, whoosh whoosh whoosh, sort a few things out. And uh, you know, I, I, it's, it is demanding, is it? Do you feel pressure that uh, on yourself in that way? Yeah, and I, I think that's that's got increasingly more difficult since COVID than it was before because there are. I think that lockdown made, meant that all families only had us to get to. You know, if they if they had children, you know, they couldn't get to the doctors, they couldn't get to anybody official. So we were the most official people in their lives. Um, and so we were the answer to all questions. And unfortunately, I think coming out of COVID, because there hasn't been an increased investment in the sorts of support families need, we remain that. We remain the go-to people. And unfortunately, when you're the go-to person, you're the go-to person when things are going well, but also when they're not going well. Um, and, and that's it's been hard. It has been hard. You know, my 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 mental health was affected during lockdown without a doubt. You know, I struggled with the the level of responsibility that that, that gave me. Um, you know, I'm not medical, I'm not a doctor, I didn't want to run a hospital. Um, but I'm trying to find that balance between keeping people safe but keeping life not feeling horrible, you know sort of tipped me over the edge with anxiety and I think obviously losing our caretaker in the middle of it didn't help and you know still having that unanswered battle in yourself um you know could I have done more and that's you know anybody in my position would think the same and I know everybody that I've ever said that to goes oh don't be daft but you'd all think the same in that position you'd all think the same you'd all think did you know did if I'd have encouraged more distance if I'd have made sure more marching but all whatever um and so you you carry that with you and i and i will always carry that with me um and so you you know what sacrifices you've made you know what sacrifices your colleagues have made and then when people feel ungrateful for that you're not you know that's difficult that's difficult and you, i've been i've been very fortunate that i've got again good people around me that i've I've made sure that I've looked after and kept who, who provide that level of protection. My PA is an absolute rottweiler. She's amazing. She will do anything <laughs> to protect me. It's brilliant. Um, and, you know, and people like that. But it is, it's, it's definitely the toughest it's ever been. People of our age, Tom, um, you know, we, when I see another head of my age, we're all thinking about the exit strategy. How do you get out? How do you, you know, see your time through by keeping doing a good job? But how do you get out in one piece? Um, and that's that's a real shame for me. I never thought I'd get to that place, but I guess that's just getting old and the back of COVID, I guess. Vic, I think it's really important that people hear stories like that because I do feel, and I don't know whether you feel the same, Tom, that I go into lots and lots of schools all over the country and there is almost like um, a kind of shell shock amongst yeah. leaders that you kind of got through it at the time and did amazing things in terrible circumstances but it's almost like there was never then a period of downtime to reflect yeah. and recover it was straight back to business as usual and I think that it's so important that people hear that successful experienced leaders yeah. are feeling that aftershock that ripple effect of everything that happened there and I think that it will be hugely reassuring for people to hear you talk candidly about that because it's like a great unspoken conversation in some. Yeah. People, and I think aftershock people, such a good such a good phrase. I think that aftershock is such a good phrase because that's really is where we are. You know, the, some of the damage to young people's resilience and attachment, and you know, it, all of the things where 
you know, them valuing what's important and what's not important. All of a sudden, is education as important as your family? And, you know, all those sorts of things of, of there was, there's going to be a lasting impact of those. Mm. And, and unless, unless there's a, a really heavy investment in youth services and youth mental health and all those sorts of things. And I don't mean, great, we're going to get back to 2010 levels. That's not an investment. That's getting back to where we were 12 years ago, 13 years ago. I mean, a proper investment. Um, I, these, how much longer schools will have to cope with that? I don't really know, you know, because it's not going anywhere. I look at our primaries and I look at some of the, some of the young people coming into reception and into nursery who are so far behind where they were previous children. I look at year seven, eight in, in our secondary school who are so much less mature than they would have, were a few years ago because they didn't all, all have key stage two to go through at primary schools. Where primary schools do an amazing job of helping them grow up, helping them understand responsibility, helping them understand leadership. Because primaries do all of that work at key stage two and before probably, but they do. And we, and we benefit from that. And what's been really stark is we're not benefiting from it anymore. And the kids are a pain. You know, I'm having more conversations about silly things that than I've ever had. And, and silly makes it sort of under, I'm downplays it a bit. Silly times by 1,200 children is quite a lot. It's <laughs> so, a lot of silly. That's a lot of silly yeah. to deal with. Yeah, <laughs> there is. There is. So it, it feels like, I mean, what, what I, I think is interesting about you is that you have this capacity to, like, you kind of, you know, you feel things deeply and, and it, it, that comes through. But there's, a, there's also this sort of optimism. It's an interesting combination, isn't it? Because yeah. it's sort of like, I mean, recruitment crisis, funding pressure, post-COVID mental health issues, accountability's not, not sorted still, all these things. And still, you know, and hey, look, we beat Finland, you know. <laughs> 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 yeah, I know. But get sort of, schools seem schools are so resilient, aren't they? They kind of get through and they do stuff despite all of that. And that don't you think that's just amazing? But it, I don't think I guess gets given remotely the credit it deserves. But that's why we're taken for granted. And this the reaction this, in this country to me being a teacher and me being a head teacher to being a, you must have seen this in your travel, your extensive travels, Thomas. Um, you know, I, I remember coming back from America a few years ago and checking in, chatting to the check-in guy, et cetera. And he goes, like, what do you do? I'm you know, thinking, oh, how can I make this American? I'm a high school principal. Oh, thank you for your service, man. I don't know how you do it. I'm like, bloody hell. And, but in England, it wouldn't be thank you for your service. It would be, you must be mad. I don't know how you do it. I'd kill the little buggers. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's a real different view of, of the service we provide. Um, and in this country, unfortunately, for whatever reason, it's it's not one that's that's given the consideration it's serving it's been taken for granted um you know and uh, my fear for all of it is teaching teaching is a tough profession and it is a profession and it is a graduate level profession and i know we've got we're going down the route of you know teaching apprenticeships which is an answer to a problem but actually i i worry that the next stage is you can do a teacher apprenticeship straight from a levels and you know all of those sorts of things that will will de-skill what's a highly skilled profession where you've got to manage both you know your academic knowledge and and your personal sort of stability and be able to take on other things from other people it worries me that that that's not viewed as highly as it is but yeah I, I'll, I'll always come back to having a purpose as a privilege and you know i feel my purpose um it, as I said, said from earlier, it's changed. It's changed what I do over the course of the years, but it is still it is still utterly pri- privileged to have. But I just I worry that that isn't you know people like of my generation will leave the profession in the next ten years, and what's coming through you know is there is there the volume of people coming through? Will they be protected a little bit like we were to get to that place? You know, or it would just be. I know you've only been teaching six years, but you're ahead. Off you go. <laughs> I can't think of anything worse. You know, I, I, I became ahead too soon, really. I should have carried on being ahead of PE for a bit longer, but the opportunities came up, you know, and, and so I took them and that was that was me, the nature of me. But, I, you know, talking to what I said earlier, there's nothing more important, is it, than that person who wants to be the best teacher they can be. They want to stay in the classroom. They want to deliver amazing lessons and, and enthuse children about their subject. They're worth more than any head teacher. 
because they're going to make the difference to the kids in the classroom every day. And so I worry that those career teachers will have gone and it will just be seen as a stepping stone. Oops. Um, Go on, Emma. Sorry, just sort of flickered then a little bit. Sorry. Now, I was just going to ask Vic. So, if we've got a, if we've got lots of people just entering headship and sort of early on in their leadership journey, if the if the kind of age demographic or experience demographic, should I say, of, of the of the um, profession is changing, what wisdom would you like to impart to those those embarking on their first journey into into <laughs> leadership? If you could kind of cast some golden nuggets over the side of good ship Goddard for them to catch. What would they, what would they be? <laughs> um, do you know what? I think I think if I was yeah, giving somebody advice, what, what would you do to find out what's really going on in a school in your first headship? You walk through the door, having been there for an interview and a couple of visits. And, and I think those answers are always in the school. Go and speak to the MDAs, go and speak to the LSAs, go and speak to both of that group of people. Get them together, tell me. What's the problem with the kids' behaviour to the MDAs? Because they'll tell you. And to the LSAs, which teachers are, are doing the best and why? Why are they Why are they doing better than other people? And they'll give you the answers. And so you'll know what your school improvement plan is instantly. Because we've always got to deal with behaviour. And the, and the MDAs will tell you which you know what, how that behaviour manifests itself. And we've always got to deal with teaching and learning. And the LSAs will tell you learning is best and where it's worked. And, you know, that's just that having that absolute internal. My son's currently studying medicine. And the best advice I've heard him repeat back to me is look after the nurses, you know, because they're the ones who know exactly what's going on. And I don't think teaching is any different. That service profession where you're trying to help somebody unpick something, be it that health, be it their learning, actually speaking to the people on the ground who are sitting next to those people every day is vital. And, you know, your deputies are great and your assistant heads are great and your chair of governance will give you an insight, but nothing like those groups of people. So that for me is the absolute starting point speak to the people who would spend the most time with the kids yeah that's so true, that is so true. <laughs> i thought this i just have this uh, memory it's, it stuck so firmly with you the first time i visited your school and you walked around and you had been on uh, educating essex and 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 you know promoting uh, you've, you've never been one of these people that sort of says no exclusions but you were sort of you know reducing exclusions last resort and yeah. that through on the program and then you were in the corridor, this lad who's in the corridor, and he said to him, look, don't believe everything you see on the telly. There is an end of the road, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, the, the children saw a heavily edited version of me too. <laughs> they didn't see the other side of it, yeah. Um, thankfully, I've had, I haven't had to refer back to it very often. I still, the kids, my year seven still arrive every year and go, sir, can we do it? Can we do that program again? No, <laughs> no we definitely can't. <laughs> Not while I'm here, but. but I thought that, was, yeah, that, that was interesting because to me, that was like, in a way, that was that was the reality is that yeah, you're trying to hold on to kids, you know, for for dear life and, and give them a, a, every chance. Um, but, the, you know, the, the need for boundaries and all of that, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complex thing, isn't it? But this is what I was thinking, like, when, you, when you're trying to teach in a school like Passports and many other schools, you're there, you know, for a teacher who's like, I don't know, 27 or something, you, you're there sort of mastering how to explain some chemistry or how to, yeah. you know, teach Shakespeare or, or whatever, or French, to children who are also, like, got these complex mm. emotional triggers and they're there lurking and you you're, you've got to sort of focus on what you can do and you need all that support around it because you can't rely on that teacher to be their mental health mm. professional at the same time yeah. but if they don't do certain things right uh, that things kick off so it the skill set you need is is huge so in your school how do you deal with that do you do you talk about this all the time? Do you have lots of training and talk to the teachers about how to cope with that? Yeah, I mean, behaviours, I'm firmly of the view, behaviour sits at the door of the head teacher, no matter how many people you've got in your pastoral systems or everywhere else. And, and for me, it's that's that's key, you know. And I find the binary world of social media really difficult because my job couldn't be less binary if, I, if it tried to be. You know, it's, you're always trying to find, you know, all the crap business phrases, water thinkers and all this, that and the other to get yourself around problems. Um, it's the, the challenge of, of 
that just as a, as a classroom teacher is huge. You know, it is huge. But I think um, the, you know, we should never exclude is just so devoid of reality. I mean, the amount of Vanessa Feltz phones me most weeks to go on talk TV on a Friday because she's always on a Friday. And or she, I'll get a text or something saying, you know, can you come and talk about whatever it is? So this week was um, there was a, a an article in the Daily Fail on trans young uh, children are being bullied into being trans, basically, and schools are doing all sorts of stuff. And I look at that and she goes, what would you do if one of your parents said they were worried about their son becoming trans or their daughter becoming trans? I'm like, just talk to them. Just have a conversation as one human being to another and try and get to understand both our positions. Oh, right. Well, what else can you do? You know, I'm never going to know what's going on in that child's head and nor is their family. But all we can do is talk to each other and come up with the best solution we can. You know, I will have limits on the solutions that I can offer. They will have limits on the solutions they are willing to accept. And as long as we both go in with honesty about that, then we'll get to a solution one way or the other. Um, and I, I and I think that's that's it, the, the core. I think we do over think i think we do over you know the i'm either this or that the reality is this is a human endeavor talk to people <laughs> you know just sit down and go your child isn't uncomfortable now going into a girl's changing room because they 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 don't identify as female anymore i obviously can't put them in the boys changing room can i and the parents go well no of course you can't so we have to, they'll have to use a different space yeah fine but you just got to be honest about it and i think that's the, the biggest thing for me is that the integrity of our job as both teachers and head teachers comes is really rooted in just being brutally honest about things and what you can and can't achieve. It's the moment we overpromise and underdeliver, we lose the children and we lose their families. And do you do you like run through that with teachers? So those sorts of scenarios, and I'm just interested in how teachers learn to do to deal with everything. And you know, whether you just say, "Don't worry about all that," we'll sort that out. You just focus on your curriculum, or do you say? Do you do a lot of like pastorals, pastoral? Yeah, I mean, so I think some of the, you know, we're back to direct instruction versus not direct instruction and things like that. Um, you know, I think, you know, when I went to school, no, not being good, and I expected them to support me instantly. Of course, if I'm the teacher, their child's done something wrong, they're going to support me, and they didn't. And that was a great shock to me <laughs> because I didn't tell my parents anything I did wrong at school because I would get double the punishment, let alone anything else. And that was what I started teaching <laughs> with that mindset. And I know how difficult that is. So one of the things that I've done explicitly with stuff is let's, 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 model, a pro, let's model a phone call to home because actually, going back to the human experience, the more you talk to the families of the most difficult children, the more likely you are to get help and things will get better. And so we, you know, I model you know, hello, this is Mr. Gallard, is it convenient? All the sorts of things I'd like to phone you about, Billy. We both want the same thing, him to be brilliant. So can we try and work through this? I've got a bit of a problem. You know, it's a human thing, but so many of us as probably young teachers when to try to be very officious and efficient and, you know, Mr. Gallard, this, it doesn't get you anywhere. It doesn't get you anywhere. So, um, yeah, I, we try as best we can. I think, you know, I always thought I had a young staff, but I now look back at my time and most of the staff that started with me are still there, so we're not young anymore. But um, <laughs> trainee, trainees-wise, over half our trainees every year are ex-students. So they sort of know our way, you know, and that's made life easier. Wait, would you do the programme again? As in, no. if they st- <laughs> <laughs> No. Um, I... I so Jay Hunt, who was the creative director of Channel 4 when our programme went out, she phoned me every year for about four or five years before until she left Channel 4, said, will you do it again this year? Mm-hmm. And I remember having a conversation with her about the second time and just said, have you got children? And she said, yeah, I've got you. Know, I said, okay, fine. What's the value of their education? Put a cost value on it. Tell me an amount of money. Um, and she said, well, I can't really do that. I said, okay, so you're asking me to name the price for you to come back into passports. And so let's, let me say, if I say a million pounds, but by having cameras on the wall, one child decides to escalate their behaviour rather than de-escalate their behaviour, and that damages their life forever, that's more, that's, that's more than a million pounds worth of damage. That's a lifetime of damage. 
Um, so until you can put a value on it for your children, I can't put a value on it for our children yeah. because we weren't the brave ones. Everybody that followed past Moors in the educating series were the brave ones because our kids didn't have a clue what it was. Literally, we had no clue what was going on. There were these metal balls on the wall and these microphones hanging, but nobody knew what the output was. But after our series, every school knew the output. Every child knew that they could find a way to be on telly if they behaved in certain ways, whereas mm. we didn't. So ours was completely, yeah, a surprise. So I, for me, they're, they're, they're two very good reasons. There's not enough money in the world to make it worth it. And <laughs> I'd need to, I don't need to encourage our children to make the wrong choices. Did you, did you learn anything from it, though, that you weren't expecting? As in, was there anything you thought, whoa, <laughs> Um, well, yeah, I, what I really, yeah. It, it, do you know what was funny? So, if you can imagine, there's these 65 cameras, all with um, their own TV screen in a caravan in our car park. That's what it was. But only ever three of them were being recorded. They were being viewed, but three of them were being recorded. And so, every now and again, I'd, I'd nip out and just sit in there, and I could see 65 places in and around the school wow. without anybody knowing I was looking at them. It was lovely. What a voyeur I became. <laughs> 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 keeping Victor um and and I remember seeing how many interactions our children had with people who weren't teachers that was the the most that was the first thing that really struck me how some of our young people would seek out a cleaner would seek out a, one of our administration staff and build a relationship with them and be be somebody that's really important to them and that, that I, I knew those sorts of things happened, but to that extent, it was amazing. And it really made me think, you know, and I've always been, the, the machine doesn't run without the oil and everybody apart from the teachers provides the oil. And so we've got to look after that side of the school. Um, but they are so much more than administrators and cleaners to the children. They're just, they're people that they can access and people they can talk to. And I think that was, yeah, that was really stark for me. And that then meant, we need to make sure that we're training those people as well, that those people are getting support. It's not just the teachers that have to hear the difficult story of a child not wanting to go home because their dad's going to beat. It might be a cleaner that's doing that. And, you know, really having to make sure that everybody has a way to both flag if there's any worries, but also to get support. Mm. I guess it's everybody just seeking out connection, isn't it? It is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's we saw that in lockdown, didn't we? Human connection is is vital to our mental health and and everything else. And you know, for some, a connection with a teacher is the last thing they'd want to do for whatever reason. So it doesn't matter who it is, you know. And 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 if you're looking for love and you're looking for support, you often take it from the, anywhere that will give it to you if you can't find it at home. And that's that was really obvious for me how some of these young people really, you know really trusted staff around the place and it made me even more humble about the job we do if I'm honest because it's amazing that you know young people tend to you know tend to eventually give in if you're there enough but for the, these young people sought out adults you know they they sought out particular people and it didn't matter where they were in the tree you know I mean it didn't matter if they were their head or they were a cleaner or they were an MDA it was just a connection and that's that's something that you know relationships are everything and we hear that but actually to see that in you know in its truest sense of the word the other thing that I did mention about young people is how much young people do support the most vulnerable when you're not looking you know we often we often worry about you know the kid being bullied or something else but actually you know I saw an interaction with our young man called Ryan who was featured in the series of autism you know, and I, I looked at the young people dealing with him and, he, you know, socially you would say he would come across as odd. Um, but they really looked after him and they didn't let people take the mickey out of him and they they gave him his space to to do his human beatbox, which was awful, or sing the Ain't Our Fault Mum theme tune. And they did it and joined in with him. You know, and that, that was so heartwarming. And that's why I guess I always said to the, the channel, I'd always support other schools doing the series. I'd always go and see the head. I'd always go and speak to the government, speak to the children. Mm. Because the reality is you're going to have a light shone on you that's going to be really illuminating. And you've got to be ready for that. Mm. Yeah, you know, I, it, it, it was, it was you know, Blazer Trail was very brave. And uh, But anyway, I mean, I think, but, but since then, I mean, I think it has, it has given you a profile which you've used 
you know, intentionally or unintentionally. But I, I, I have to say this. I think, like, for me, you're a, a genuine inspiration, you know, and I think a lot of people. Oh, thank you. Because you just represent so much that's good about teaching, the profession, that sense of community and how important that is. And so championing young people in a way which I don't, you know, not everybody does that. So uh, that means a lot, Tom. Thanks. I really appreciate that. That means a huge amount. Amazing. And, and all the sort of gloom and doom that we surround ourselves with, which, you know, we, we don't, it's for kind of, I do think that you are in, in, an inspiration in a literal sense of people want to be like you. People want to be, I want to do that job that Vic does. And I hope the people who listen to this think, yeah, you know what? It's hard, but it's, it's, that's it's amazing. Thank you. Do that. So that's amazing. It, it, yeah, it's back, back to purpose, Tom. You know, I, I I found my purpose and I feel very privileged to have that. And I, I just, that we all say, find a job you love, you'll never work a day in your life. I'm working. <laughs> <laughs> I may love the job, but I'm working. It's yeah, not yeah. easy. But it's not easy. It's, but it's worth it. Well, look, we get we get we get in the uh, the the light from the the producers. I'm gonna have to wrap it up. <laughs> Honestly, Vic, it's been such a joy talking Thank to you. you. Uh, it's great to know you. Thanks for being on our show. Um, good luck with everything. Carry carry on, <laughs> and uh, you know we'll, we'll hope to see you soon. So, thank you so much, everyone. Thank, Thanks thank for listening. You. Thank you both. Really appreciate. It. I've got to give you a world exclusive, Tom. Right, world exclusive. This is for your program only. Mr. Drew is coming back to Harlow. Oh my God! Fantastic. <laughs> I appointed him for deputy head's job. Deputy head's job at one of the schools I'm supporting. He's coming back as deputy head in Harlow. I've succeeded. It took me 10 years to get him back, but he's coming back. Goodbye, Brentwood. Hello, Harlow. World exclusive, just here. I'm really pleased to hear that. That's great. He's a legend as well. Well, it's great. (laughs) Maybe the old Essex days, the the, the great days for me. Thank you so much. Thank you, both. Thank you for being my 50th follower. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm going to get a badge with 50 on it. <laughs> <laughs> thanks, everyone. Uh, thanks for listening to Mind the Gap, making education work across the globe um, with me and Emma, and we'll see you again really soon. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to Mind the Gap. We hope you enjoyed hearing what's on our minds today. For much more great content, make sure to check out the video version of our show, which includes additional segments and features. Visit edcircuit.com or go to YouTube and subscribe to our channel, Mind the Gap with Tom and Emma. See you next time.